G'day and welcome to another episode of Sacred Cinema here on 2XX 98.3 FM People Powered Radio. I'm your host, Jimmy Bernasconi, and this week's episode is entitled Intro to Infidelity. very excited to present today's episode on infidelity. That might sound a bit weird, uh, but it's something that I've been meaning to chat about on this show for quite some time. Uh, it's a very broad uh, topic, though, which is why this episode is entitled Intro to Infidelity. It's going to be sort of a glaze over the concept, and hopefully maybe in a couple of weeks after this, we can sort of hone into some of the specific aspects of infidelity and a little bit more detail. If you are new to the show, just a reminder that this is sacred cinema in which we sort of take a look at some kind of big sociological, cultural, philosophical, spiritual concept or, or, or you know, a, a, a nuanced sort of aspect of a concept and sort of look at films, uh, you know, movies, uh, pieces of cinema um, that, that, that sort of discuss or explore those concepts and try and pull out through a fairly subjective, uh, through a fairly subjective means, uh, try and pull out some important insights or some helpful insights that might be able to nourish us in our explorations or in uh, being challenged by or in confronting those uh, fairly confronting um, social uh, uh, obstacles and things like that. Uh, and we're going to talk about infidelity this week, uh, partly because I've just seen a film that was uh, it's on at the moment at Palace Cinemas. Um, very lucky to see this one. Um, it's got both sides of the blade, directed by Claire Denis, who, uh, if you're a fan of the show, we know we've talked about uh, one of Claire Denis' films before. Uh, it was a chocolat, and I'm a big Claire Denis fan, um, and so I was really excited to see this one, and I absolutely loved the film. We're going to get onto that one uh, in just a moment on today's show. Um, but as I watched it, I thought it was a really refreshing take on infidelity and relationships just more broadly, and I wanted to sort of unpack uh, that concept a little bit more, particularly because it's something that we've touched on a lot on the show. There's a lot of films that we're going to, we're actually going to make a lot of references to a lot of films we've talked about on today's show, uh, in, in, you know, on Sacred Cinema on today's show. Uh, so it might be a good one to, um, uh, after, you, after you watch this one, after you listen to this one, to go back, uh, go through the archives and have a, some other listens to some of the other shows that we've done uh, that, we, that we'll mention on today's show. But before we launch into the films themselves, I uh, I just wanted to sort of unpack this idea of infidelity um, because obviously there's a there's a big aspect of infidelity. We're talking about sort of adultery, this concept of adultery, and um, we often do this on the show. We sort of look about look at sort of the, the concepts that we that we're talking about, how they've been depicted throughout human history, specifically in, in you know in, in art and literature and culture and, and particularly religion uh, and the and the big religions, the ones that continue to resonate. And and I mean if you're looking at the Abrahamic faiths, right? Uh, if you look at something like the Seven Deadly Sins or the Ten Commandments. Adultery is a pretty, like, it's a bad thing to do, right? So it's, it's sort of, um, we'll get onto this in just a moment, but it, it does have this sort of perpetual, uh, it, sort of, it, it sort of is perpetually bad, if, if that makes sense. It's going to be something that, it does sort of seem that it's something that for many, many centuries has been something that we've been warned against doing. I mean, if you look at the Ten Commandments, um, number seven, right, one-tenth of the Ten Commandments is, you know, do not, um, you know, thou shalt not commit adultery. I also think, you know, if you look at the Seven Deadly Sins, the lust, you know, not necessarily cheating, but it goes hand in hand with cheating. The idea of sort of you know walking down the street with your, uh, with your significant other, and then you know catching a glance of another uh, beautiful person on the other side of the street and uh, feeling a bit guilty about it. 
Uh, then also, if you look specifically at the, at the Islamic faith, I mean, I don't really understand the, the, the structure of, you know, of Islam as, as well as I maybe do Christianity and things because of my background. But if you just have a quick Google search of, the, you know, the punishment of, for adultery in, in Islam, it's pretty hectic stuff there. So um, it, it clearly has this, you know, th or throughout the centuries, it has been, um, you know, we've been warned against adultery. You know, when you make a commitment to someone um, that you don't uh, stray, go astray. Um, but, but, but when we talk about adultery, in that sense, or infidelity in the context of adultery, it's very much about being, you know, faith, being faithful to a person, uh, particularly in a romantic context. But I want to also just unpack this idea of, you know, we're speaking specifically about infidelity, not not cheating, not adultery, infidelity. Um, and if you look at that word, if you take away maybe the last couple of letters, you get this word infidel. And you might be familiar with that word sort of in the context of like, you know, terrorism and extremism, things like that. You know, we refer to, um, you know, you know, you know, like religious terrorists often refer to their enemies as infidels, but it's not like they're, it's not like they're, they're their enemies are like their husbands or wives that may be cheating on them. They sort of often talk about, you know, people in other countries who, 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 um, are, you know, are parts of other faith, particularly in like Islamic extremism, for example, uh, you know, it refers to people who, who don't believe in Allah, right? They are unfaithful. Uh, so faith having this religious connotation, I mean, if you if you define the word infidelity, that's what it means to to be unfaithful. So that's why they use the word infidel because it refers to people who don't have faith. So I guess from that, I think it's really important this week with, with the films that we're talking about that I think they actually can they can apply to not just the concept of, of romantic infidelity, but but unfaithfulness in a general sense. Not not having faith in um, the thing that you're supposed to be committed to, the thing that you know you're supposed to be committed to. So maybe that is a person, but maybe it's your kid, or maybe it's um, a family member, or maybe it's someone, um, maybe it's a political figure. You don't have faith in a political figure, or a political institution, or a political entity. So I think we should take sort of a general view. It's important to sort of mention that when we're talking about infidelity, we're talking about ha not having faith in the thing that you ought to have faith in um, but in order to unpack that um, that idea through uh, through film through cinema let's actually um, introduce the films we're going to talk about the first one is going to be the 1946 film uh, by Tay Garnett, and that is The Postman Always Rings Twice uh, we're then going to move on to um, uh, the 2004 film by, directed by Mike Nichols, Closer. Uh, and then we're going to finish off with Both Sides of the Blade, directed by Claire Denis uh, from this year. Uh, but let's get started now with the 1946 version of The Postman Always Rings Twice. So this is the 1946 version. Uh, there was a 1981 version. We're actually going to very briefly talk. We're going to talk about the one very briefly uh, in a second. But if you don't know much about this one, basically it stars um, Frank, who is played by John Garfield, and he's sort of this drifter that's that's moving along um, the, the streets in Cal the, the highways of California, and he stops at this diner, and the very beautiful Lana Turner is there. She plays uh, Cora, so John Garfield plays a guy called Frank, and Lana Turner plays Cora, and she's married to a guy called Nick who's played by Cecil Kellaway, and he's sort of this bumbling older chap uh, who runs the diner, and he's got a bit of money to his name because he owns a business, and um, that's sort of why she's married to him. And she's very, very, it's, it's very important that she is very beautiful. Um, and obviously, she wants to be married to someone you know closer to her age, who's a little bit more exciting and interesting. And so when when um, Frank shows up, he sort of uh, he, he offers to sort of help out at the diner and, and, and sort of tries to woo her and gets her on his side, and then she's sort of tempted to leave uh, Nick and run away with Frank. So we're definitely in the 
territory of adultery and, and faith. And they're none of them are particularly bad people. None of them are like criminals or anything like that. Um, but uh, there is this question of, you know, you know, you know, what is, I guess, what is the, the ultimate consequence of indulging um, feelings of, of, of wanting to, 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 to cheat on your husband, to leave your husband behind? Uh, and I thought it was just important to mention as well, because it comes up a little bit more in some of the other films we're going to talk about today. You know, I, I know I bang on a lot about this on the show, but Frank's character um, is a drifter. I mean, if you look him up, on IMDb, that's like how he's described in like all the synopsis and stuff like that. And really interesting, in, in really interestingly, in the 1981 film of, version of this film was directed by Bob Rafelson uh, and Jack Nicholson. We know that combo from Five Easy Pieces, and that's sort of to, to me the classic uh, the drifter uh, film. And in that film, we talked about sort of the idea of you know rights and responsibilities and the sort of intertwined perpetual motion between those concepts. That you know to 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 to, to take up responsibility is to um, pay the price of freedom, but equally the price of freedom means uh, you know you don't have any um, you know you, f- you might feel lonely you're out on the you're out on the road all the time so so that's sort of uh, that, that's key to Frank's character throughout this film that he's this this sort of main protagonist uh, you know he his um, his baseline let's say is the life of drifting and so this is sort of his um, this is a, this is maybe like the first of um, this is like the first commitment in a long time that he has made to Lana Turner it's not really a question about him committing it's more about her leaving. Um, Nick, but th- but that's definitely under the surface for the entire time, and it definitely comes up more and more in the films we're going to talk about uh, throughout the rest of the show. So I just thought I would just mention that. I'm not going to go on about it too much for the rest of our chat about this film specifically, but I think it's a really important aspect of the film to mention. Um, I want to talk about this one more in terms of the inevitability of comeuppance, right? When we engage in some kind of immoral act, such as adultery, or at least to say that adultery sort of falls within um, that sphere of the kinds of things that if you do them, uh, it, it sort of seems you know, that, 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 that eventually there will be some kind of inevitable consequence uh, that, that that sneaks its head around the corner. And we've definitely talked about that a lot on the show before, this idea of comeuppance. We talked about that when we talked about the scary stalkers, um, you know, this idea of the impending um, figure that follows you, that, that is dormant, forever dormant behind you. Uh, this is more a question of, you know, sort of what's lurking in the shadows, I guess. Uh, and, and definitely there's an aspect of this film which is, is all about the sort of the futility. And, and because it's, a, it, because it's a, like a noir film um, from, from, that, from that era, from the 19, that 1940s, 50s era, this is definitely getting to that territory of the futility of scheming or rationality or reason or logic or sort of meticulous planning uh, when trying to pull off sort of the perfect crime in a way. Very similar to when we talked about Dial in for Murder, the idea that you know, no matter how meticulous, no matter how you know, in in bunny ears, uh, perfect your murder um, plan is, uh, there is this sort of sense within us all, uh, and that's what sort of creates the suspense in these films, which is that we kind of know that no matter how meticulous, no matter how well planned your crime might be, we know that there's always going to be this sort of inevitable hand of God, this invisible hand that leads to your ultimate comeuppance. Uh, and, and it's kind of interesting to sort of check that in yourself when you watch these films to, to, to kind of know that this isn't all isn't settled. I feel like something's about to happen. And we're going to talk about a little, that a little bit more in a second. Um, but also this idea of futility of scheming. We've talked about that uh, well in, in terms of um, 
in the context of immorality before as well, or at least the idea of sort of moral rationalism or or moral extremism. We've talked about that when we talked about the movie The Conference, and we talked about um, uh, in The Killers uh, episode when we talked about um, Snowtown. Uh, but this idea of, of thinking that, you know, moral rationalism, being able to rationalize your moral decisions or your, 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 or ethics or anything like that, and being able to follow a moral and an articulated moral code, a moral code that is written down in black letters as if that can actually lead to a state of justice. That's actually quite a futile act in a lot of these films. And then I also want to just quickly mention the movie The Deep Blue Sea, that that shark one we did many, many weeks ago as well. We talk about this idea of you know science versus um, sort of the salt of the earth instinctual uh, hero character, the one that sort of relies on their gut, that trusts in nature, that understands that there are these these inevitable themes in nature um, that that we all must must adhere to, and that that science is an important concept, but but the idea of trying to plan or hypothesize or or rationalize a way um, to eliminate hardship, to eliminate suffering um, is always going to be a futile task. So, I, I mean, I should actually speak specifically about the film itself, but I think one of the best things about the noir genre, and particularly this film, is that it does lift up that idea of no matter sort of how hard you scheme, no matter how meticulous you are, there is something always sort of lurking in the shadows that's going to undo all that hard work uh, that you've done. So you kind of, the, the, the idea of that, you know, we've mentioned it before, the, the, the sort of perpetuity um, of, of fundamental moral uh, I guess moral norms or moral obligations. Be it, you know, you don't don't murder, don't steal, don't cheat on your on your spouse. That they sort of have this perpetual quality, and I think you'd sort of apply that idea to sort of all noirs, and that this one is sort of the one that's specifically about adultery in that sense. I think it's sort of this entire genre. Uh, in this entire genre, you have, you have countless films where you know the protagonist who indulges the dark, uh, or who indulges mischief or immorality or or disobedience or or just who's sort of abandons conventional morality uh, sort of gets what's coming to them. So I guess in if we use that dial in for murder example, you know, that that, that one could really apply to you know, Thou Shalt Not Murder or Maltese Falcon, I suppose, could apply to Thou Shalt Not Steal or, you know, the one about idols or something like that. Uh, that. I think you could apply sort of any sort of noir film to any of those sort of fundamental commandments or fundamental moral norms that, that have sort of been there throughout human history. And this one is the one that kind of uh, applies to to adultery, I guess. Um, so I guess I don't actually mean, I haven't, I haven't sort of spoken much about the film itself. I, I suppose there's a specific aspect of the film uh, that I really appreciate it, it, particularly in the context of today's conversation, which is that there's so many sort of plateaus in the film where where Lana Turner and, and John um, Garfield's characters sort of, they get out of it. They sort of, they, they find themselves on a flat plane, let's say, uh, that they've sort of, you know, hiked up this this mountainous journey of, of, of treachery and betrayal and, and, and illegality and through some clever means have found a way of getting away with it. Uh, but as I mentioned before, as the viewer, we kind of can sense that something is going going about to go wrong and, and if you've seen the film, you know that, you know, um, you know, these films are always sort of uh, shrouded in, in tragedy by the end of them or something like that. You know, there's there's no there's no um, there's no way of getting away with it, let's say. So um, I guess just in a holistic sense, because we really do have to move on at this point. But I guess I guess we would say, you know, in a very simplistic sense, a, a film like this does sort of give us this springboard idea for today's show, which is that. That, that adultery is a bad thing to do, right? You're not going to get away with it. Eventually, it's going to eat at you. Uh, it's some, it's somehow, un, your unfaithfulness will eventually catch up on you, just like, you know, dishonesty uh, or any of those fundamental things that we do need to hold to be valued. So if we know it's a bad thing, why do people do it? 
I mean, why do really attractive, successful people who have their lives in order, why do they still do it? Um, but before we answer that question with the next film, let's firstly, uh, I'd just like to remind you, you are listening to Sacred Cinema uh, here on 2XX 98.3 FM, People Powered Radio. I'm your host, Jimmy Bernasconi. Please jump onto the 2XX FM website if you haven't already to subscribe to the station, uh, help support us, or sponsor the show, or sponsor any of 2XX's fantastic programs here on People Powered Radio. Uh, and stay tuned for more quality radio programming coming up just after this uh, episode of Sacred Cinema. But let's move on now to the 2004 film uh, by my director by Mike Nichols, and this is Closer. And to uh, convey the plot to those that haven't seen it, I guess, I guess in a really simplistic sense, it's about uh, it's got a it's got a it's got a classic two by two structure. And there's lots of films that do this. We've talked about this a lot on the show before. We have sort of two men and two women who are sort of intermingling, who sort of go between one another. And it's a really good way of sort of conveying. I, I you, these films can serve us in this way that I'm that I'm about to say, which is that they they can convey the two spectrums of masculinity and femininity and how they interact. Uh, with each other and, and, and I want to talk about this film sort of in that context or at least through that lens um, and, and, and sort of want to think about um, each of the characters you know, the, the, the four main ones are Natalie Portman Jude Law uh, Julia Roberts and Clive Owen and they all sort of go out with each other at different times in the film or at least the, the men and the women swap between each other um, and I want to look at this sort of in a way which is that it's a depiction of the sort of the four ideal romantic archetypes if that makes sense so um you know that they, they both sort of the both the men and both the women sort of at, at two uh, two ends of um the spectrum of um des- sexual desirability in a way um and, and they all have their their own, their own distinct traits and strengths and weaknesses and costs and benefits let, let me put it in terms that's probably a little bit more um mythic but let, let i think jude law's character is kind of like um the, sort of like the poet right this archetype of the poet so he's very creative um very romantic very uh, charismatic uh, sort of laissez-faire in his you know in, in terms of his career and things like that uh, and very exciting and shares a lot of these qualities with, say, with, with, with what let's call the beauty, which is Natalie Portman's character, who's, you know, she's a stripper in this film. You know, sorry, Jude Law's character is a, a writer, so which is what we call him the poet. Uh, Natalie Portman is a, is a stripper in this film. Uh, so she sort of also is a bit, exi- a bit exciting, a bit laissez-faire. She's very sexy and she's very youthful. So she's sort of got that, that element of visual sexuality about her. She kind of, um, you know, checks the box that a 14-year-old boy who's just discovered puberty um, might be very interested in. But let's compare compare her then to Julia Roberts' character, who's also attractive, but sort of con- attractive in sort of the opposite kind of way. And I, and I think, you know, the archetype that she might sort of represent is sort of, uh, and I'm going to be, it's an interesting one, but but bear with me. I think she's sort of like the witch, if you get what I'm saying. And I don't mean that in a, in a, in a, in a way that, that that's actually bad, but she's very intelligent. Um, she certainly casts a spell in that the, the men that do sort of fall for her um, become very infatuated with her and sort of like on a very deep level. Um, they're not on sort of that sort of very superficial level, but she, that they become very extremely infatuated with her, and in that sense, she is actually a very, very powerful force. I think all the characters sort of do go in, in and out of being powerful and not in, empowered and disempowered in the film. But she's certainly one, the one that I think very often has, you know, maybe the most power out of all these characters, or at least is perhaps the most intelligent, um, in sort of in the world of romance. 
And then to finish off, we've got Clive Owen's character, who's a, who's a doctor. And so I think he's kind of like the scientist in a way. So his appeal is that he's also very intelligent, just like um, Julie Roberts's character. Uh, but he's also very reliable, uh, both, you know, economically, in an economic sense, but also sort of emotionally. You know, he's, he's just like a, a guy in a white coat. You don't have to worry about him in the same way you might have to worry about Jude Law's character, who might be, you know, going off and, and doing sort of crazy things in, these, in the artistic scenes. This is sort of a, you know, a, a stable force, but isn't particularly exciting isn't particularly exciting. So all the strengths and weaknesses of each of those sort of archetypes, um, they, they they sort of maybe represent the, the you know the respective strengths and weaknesses of the other. You know the, the strengths of one might be the weaknesses of an of an, another. You know Clive Owen's um, stability might be um, you know Jude Law's weakness and and, and vice versa. You know uh, Natalie Portman's uh, sexiness might be uh, uh, Julia Roberts's. I'm not, she's not not sexy in the film, but that's she's sort of you know you know wears wears uh, more professional clothing all the time. So they sort of have this constant seesaw effect. And there's sort of this, there's this kind of this this inevitability about each of these characters, which is that if you, if you sort of put all of that together, it does sort of seem that two of the characters are kind of destined to a, or sort of condemned to this this state of loneliness but freedom. And the two others are going to be condemned to just the opposite. They, they're going to have, um, uh, you know, they're not going to be lonely, uh, but they might not feel free. Uh, and that's sort of the age-old uh, sort of trade-off in a relationship. But what I think is particularly, uh, I should probably unpack that a little bit more. I guess, you know, if, if you do settle down in life, if you decide to live a life of stability, let's say, and you want to, you know, be an intelligent grown-up and settle down, you do you might lament the fact that you can't go out dancing anymore and meeting other young people or something like that. But but equally, if you, if you do go out and live live out in the world, live in the big city and, and mingle and shake hands and meet new people all the time. You don't have that element of, of you know, lifelong stability. You don't have, you know, that element of, of reliability. Uh, so there's always going to be a trade-off either way. There's, there is this concept of being of damned if you do, damned if you don't. And that, that sort of does run through all the films that we'll talk about today. But there's a specific aspect of you know there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's it's important that we we emphasize that these characters do have that kind of archetypal energy right that they're at the ends of the spectrum they are very very attractive people they're all very super sexy people and I think it's really important that this film is a that uh, this is a film and not a play. It's it was obviously written originally as a play, but what to me it's so important. That this film is a, this is a film specifically because you have those icons. If you remember Jude Law in two thousand and four, if you remember Natalie Portman two thousand four, and and Julie Roberts etc etc, these are sex symbols of the day. These are the most attractive people in the culture at the time. And I'm not saying that they're they're playing themselves in the film, but. That does lift up this question that even, you know, if the most attractive people in society have these problems, we're all sort of doomed, aren't we, right? Like, and if you think about Hollywood itself in, in, in reality, that is the truth, right? There's very few couples that do um, go the distance. If you think about like Kim Kardashian and Kanye West, for example, I mean, Kim Kardashian might be the sex symbol of the 21st century, yet hasn't held down um, a, a, a long-term, lifelong partnership. And that's not, and that's not a, I'm not dissing on her, but it sort of is the nature of, uh, romance is that we are sort of condemned to this this seesaw, this this rights versus responsibility, this co- benefits versus costs um, dilemma, where you know to, to go down one um, route in, in that fork in the road uh, is to abandon another one that has so many benefits and and, uh, and and costs as well. But you know we are we are we abandon one thing for another. We we inevitably have to take on a burden in order to gain some benefit in romantic relationships. So. 
Is there, a way, is there a way that we can navigate romance, which, which does have this sort of doom and gloom element to it? Is there a way that we can navigate that in a way that, that means that we do live a fulfilling life and are just depressed for the rest of our lives? Well, let's finish off now with Claire Denis' new film, um, Both Sides of the Blade. And as I mentioned before, it is also called Fire, but I like Both Sides of the Blade, Both Sides of the Blade a lot more, um, basically because it does sort of play on this idea of damned if you do, damned if you don't, you know, that there is one side of the blade and there's another side, another side of the blade. You know, just when you think this side is terrible, you do, you you know, try the other side. Um, and, and basically this one um, so centers on, you know, closes about a love square. Uh, let's call this one a love triangle then. Uh, and it stars, um, also just for film nerds out there, French film nerds, this has got um, Julia Benoche and Vincent Linden in it together, which is, I think this is the first time they've ever played uh, opposite each other in a film. So very exciting for French film nerds out there. But basically they're uh, a couple, they've been together for about nine years. And... Um, this guy, Francois, who's actually Sarah's ex-boyfriend, um, hires uh, Vincent Linden's character, his name is Jean, uh, hires him to work with him. Um, so, uh, and, and, and Francois being Sarah's ex-boyfriend, you know, there's this inevitable love triangle that comes from that. Now, it, there's plenty of films about love triangles and Twilight and blah, blah, blah. But what I think is particularly interesting about this one, you know, and I'm going to speak very simplistically about this film, to be honest, um, or at least not in a particularly intellectual way. I think this is a good one just to, to watch and listen to what your heart says when you watch a film like this, and listen to how you feel um, when you, especially when you, you, you know, you, when you um, observe Sarah's character and how she navigates this love triangle. Because I think it's very quite a, a quite a, 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 sub, a subverting film, or it's a bit of an innovative film, or a very fresh film. Uh, because I, I mean, personally, I couldn't help feel a great deal of sympathy for her in this film, particularly because she's thrust into this situation. You know, she, you know, she's made a commitment to Jean, uh, and then and then Francois sort of just shows up because Jean sort of doing business with him it's not like she's gone out lurking and and you know it's not like she's gone to one of those websites because she's you know, not feeling the the magic anymore with Jean she just sort of he just Francois just sort of comes back into her life without any you know she doesn't have the choice about that and also this is I think the, Denis does such a good job of depicting Sarah's relationship with Francois saying that, you know she can't help sort of the feelings that are there like you know it's not her I mean, it's not really her fault that she once felt love for this guy uh, and that sort of resurfaced now he's back in her life I do sort of think that the film does a really good job of us feeling like you know her in that situation I mean she's not asked to be here and the fact that she has feelings for him or residual feelings that are now growing again you know that's just it's it's not really her ego that, that, that's at fault there that just sort of happens to the human body sometimes and she actually you know there's really interesting scenes um, you know and it works so well as, as a visual you know the, the film film as a visual medium is so is so important here because we, you know we see how the, the characters sort of physically interact um, Sarah and, and Francois I mean in that in that she, she never takes she, like for a, for a long part of this film she never actually like technically cheats on him, there isn't necessarily like romantic contact, if you get what I'm saying, and it's it's kind of obscure the way that they sort of uh, act with each other, and the, in where she kisses him, and the way they sort of touch, and that sort of thing. So there's a way to look at this film where, where no one really does anything wrong. I mean, she does, but like you can't help but feel like this is sort of like a, just a terrible situation. Uh, like in, in the way that we've been talking about uh, when we talk about it in, in closer, in closer. But this is sort of this 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 inevitability of condemnation, and you kind of feel for these characters that they've been thrown to this situation. So you've got to ask yourself this question. So, so what do you do from there when, when, when you want to be committed to someone, when you love someone, but you can't help that your body is actually taking you to another person, and you and you hate that about yourself, but it's happening. Well, I want to go back to this the, the film, The Piano, which we talked about many, many months ago when we talked about uh, freedom and relationships. And this idea about someone, you know, you can't really know 
uh, if you've found true love, if, if you don't really have the chance to leave someone, if that makes sense, right? Like, how can you know that you actually love someone if it wasn't actually an active choice, if you didn't actually employ agency in doing so? And so at the end of this film, Both Sides of the Blade, and if you haven't seen the film, maybe maybe don't listen to this part from here. I'll try not to give too much away. But it does sort of seem that Sarah kind of has this choice about who to choose. And it's sort of the choice in and of itself that is the actual goal. And perhaps it's in acknowledging that from the other side, right? Maybe it's in um, Vincent Linden's character, um, Jean. Maybe for Jean, that's the key to his romantic uh, endeavors as well, to acknowledge that she has that choice and to observe the ways, uh, to observe the ways that she uh, employs that. So I, I guess in a, in a more conceptual, in a more conceptual sense, maybe the right person for us is the one that sort of understands that we actually have options and appreciates our choice to stay with them nevertheless, right? Maybe that's what we're actually looking for in a partner that, that, that sees that one day, you know, our hearts may, um, they, they may divert slightly, but notwithstanding that we still stay with them and that they actually appreciate that about us. Um, but then there's a, the, 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 you know, but vice versa on the other side of that, um, you know, as lovers, we always need to remember that we are not the full package. We never will be, and we can't be that. So we sort of owe it to our partners to be completely and utterly devoted to them. Well, that's all we've got time for this week on Sacred Cinema here on 2XX 98.3 FM, people-powered radio. I've been your host, Jimmy Bernasconi. Stay tuned for more quality radio programming coming up here on 2XX FM or jump onto our website if you haven't already uh, consider subscribing to the station. We love all the support you can provide and consider sponsoring the show if you'd be interested or any of 2XX's wonderful programs. Um, thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you again very soon.